All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Peterson. I'd like to thank you all for joining us for our SMA.com Academic Alliance speaker session entitled Deterring Iran in the Gray Zone, Insights from Four Decades of Conflict. I'd also like to thank today's speaker, Mr. Michael Eisenstadt, for taking time to present today. So just a few quick uh, housekeeping items before we begin. So we'll be having a Q&A session at the conclusion of today's brief. So during the brief or during the Q&A, please feel free to submit your questions through ZoomGov's chat function. It's a ch the chat icon at the bottom bar of your screen. Also make sure to go ahead and submit all of your questions today to Ms. Mariah Yeager. Her name should be listed as questions-Mariah Yeager. Questions that will not be submitted to Mariah specifically may not be addressed, so please make sure to go ahead and submit your questions to Mariah. Also note that your name is going to appear in the chat before your question, and it will be read out loud before we address your question. So if you prefer for your name to not be recorded and on the record, go ahead and rename yourself by going to participants at the bottom bar of your screen, then more next to your name, and finally rename. So now I'm going to introduce today's speaker before I turn the floor over to him. Mr. Michael Eisenstadt is a Con Fellow and the Director of Military and Security Studies Program at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He's a specialist in Arab-Israeli and Persian Gulf security affairs, and he's published widely on irregular and conventional warfare and nuclear weapons proliferation in the Middle East. Mr. Eisenstadt also served for 26 years as an officer in the U.S. Army Reserve before retiring in 2010. And his most recent publications include Deterring Iran in the Gray Zone, Insights of Four Decades of Conflict, which he will be discussing today. Uh, so Mr. Eisenstadt, I'll turn the floor over to you now, and I will pull up your slides. Thank you very much, Nicole. Julie, Todd, and everybody else from the SMA um, Stratcom Ac uh, Academic Alliance team. It's an honor to be here. Um, very excited about this opportunity. Um, the presentation today is based on a monograph that I published at the uh, Washington Institute in April. Um, but it's based on previous works I did at the Institute, um, both published through the Institute and outside the Institute, including a monograph I did in January 2020 on um, Iran's gray zone strategy, another piece that appeared in PRISM magazine published by National Defense University um, uh, a number of months ago, uh, which was kind of a um, updated and shortened version of that piece. So the reason why I, I, I did this um, was, was several fold. First, um, as the U.S. Um, increasingly rebalances towards the Indo-Pacific region as part of our, you know, the, the, the previous administration's national defense strategy, and it looks like this will continue under the current administration, deterrence is increasingly important um, in the Middle East. Um, and I'll just say, as somebody who's watched the U.S.-Iran um, deterrence dialogue for four decades now, it seems to me that uh, we still find um, Iran's gray zone modus operandi is very challenging. And we have either forgotten lessons from the past um, related to conventional deterrence, we have not completely absorbed all the lessons relating to deterrence in the gray zone, and to a um, certain extent, our thinking about deterrence is still influenced by our experience of, um, with regard to nuclear deterrence during the Cold War. And each of these kind of deterrence is, is different, has different you know, prerequisites for success, measures of effectiveness are different. So I thought it would be useful to write a piece on this. I also thought it would be important, especially since um, both China and Russia are also gray zone actors, that it'd be important to understand the lessons from um, the experience in dealing with Iran, some of which may be applicable to China and Russia, 
if only because the United States is the common actor in all of these um, interactions. And some of the ways, some of the, I, I think, maybe shortcomings in the way that the United States thinks about gray zone deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Iran are likely to be transferred um, in the way that we interact with the Chinese and the Russians. And therefore, it's important to understand um, how we, uh, how the United States as an actor kind of functions vis-a-vis um, -vis gray zone actors in order to, so to speak, up our game. Um, and then finally, you know, it was, I, I wrote it because I think increasingly, at least, you know, my perspective is as a regional specialist is, is that the future is increasingly gray. I don't rule out the possibility of um, high-end conventional conflict, whether it be with Iran, I, I, I'm kind of skeptical, but you have to plan for that potential possibility. And likewise, vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia. And therefore, um, you know, I, I think gray zone is going to be the dominant um, form of interstate conflict and competition in the future. And therefore, we have to be increasingly competent in operating in this um, environment. So anyhow, next slide, please. Uh, to start with a few points, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to do kind of, you know, I, I, I suspect that most of you are quite familiar with the, the basics of gray zone competition, but I'll just touch on a few points. Um, today, it's the preferred modus operandi, at least until now, it has been about the status quo powers like China, Russia, and Iran. However, it's not, there's nothing new about it. You know, this is kind of um, a modus operandi both, that both the United States and the Soviet Union practiced during the Cold War. Um, especially uh, via the use of proxies, although gray zone competition is, is, goes way beyond proxy competition. In fact, I would argue that this is an area where you know, we'll rarely have proxies we can rely on, and therefore a lot of our gray zone um, activities have to be unilateral, but you know, um, unacknowledged or covert. Uh, unacknowledged overt activities or, or, or you know, kind of um, covert activities. The whole the whole thing about gray zone um, competition is that it enables the gray zone actor to advance their interests while avoiding escalation or averting war. And therefore, um, risk management is very central, at least from my experience looking at Iran, uh, risk management is central to the calculus of the gray zone actor. The essence of gray zone action is um, ambiguity, deniability, standoff. Uh, to avoid decisive engagement with the adversary and to create uncertainty with regard to how to appropriately respond to the challenge from the gray zone actor. Now, let me just discuss a little bit about deniability versus standoff um, in the case of Iran. And, and these comments are just relevant to Iran. You know, a lot of people kind of say that, you know, deniability is very critical to Iran's modus operandi. That's why they rely on proxies. I I'm not sure that's always the case. In fact, I think in many cases, it's not the critical factor. I think standoff, the standoff that is enabled by proxies is really the key factor. And my evidence for this is that very often Iran does not remove manufacturers' data plates from weapons that they provide to their proxies. So, you know, weapons that are you know, produced in Iran are provided to proxies and used against the United States, for instance, in Iraq during our, you know, uh, um, eight-year um, occupation there, and they didn't make an effort to, to cover the origins of the weapons. I think they, they were relying on the standoff, the fact that they were providing weapons to proxies that were using them against um, the United States was the major factor for them. And I, I, in fact, I think they sometimes relish putting a, a thumb in their eye by actually having, you know, leaving, leaving uh, fingerprints on, on the activities they do. This is also true in the cyber domain. A lot of the software um, code, you know, for some of their cyber uh, weapons, my understanding is, has Farsi terms in them. 
And so I think they kind of relish kind of leaving these fingerprints. But the fact is because the, you know, the cyber attacks are routed through, you know, servers on multiple continents sometimes providing standoff. And there's questions about whether the, these are independent actors or state-sponsored actors that are engaged in at least some of the activities, again, creates a degree of standoff, which, uh, you know, creates challenges on our part in terms of how to respond. Another point about gray zone activity is incrementalism. Um, again, they don't seek, you know, a knockout blow. It's achieving incremental advantage over the long run. And likewise, it's not always lethal activities. You know, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, Marine barracks bombing, Kovar towers, a lot of their activities were high impact lethal activities. Today, a lot of their activities are non-lethal. So it's, and, you know, for instance, the, um, the strike on the Saudi Aramco facilities in September of 2019, which I'll discuss a little bit a little later. Um, you know, there were some very credible reports that the Supreme Leader said, no civilians and no Americans can be killed in this strike. It created a dramatic disproportionate psychological effect that, that particular strike, but it was non-lethal, okay? So a lot of, and also a lot of their limpet mine attacks are by design non-lethal, kind of um, limpet mines, uh, you know, on the bow and the stern of the ships and the like where, you know, kind of away from the, you know, crew accommodation areas. Um, although in, in one of their recent strikes um, in the Gulf um, against the um, uh, Mercer Street um, tanker, they, 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 there was lethal intent and they did kill, end up killing two people. So the, the key to understand about gray zone activities is that they are designed to circumvent the adversary's deterrent efforts, which is one reason why they're very difficult to counter. And they're rooted in the universal aspects of human psychology, which I'm not gonna discuss much now, but I'll allude to later. I'll also say that Iran's gray zone strategy is something that they've been, this is something they've been doing from the beginning since the early 1980s. It kind of emerged almost fully developed in a way in the early 1980s. Um, and I mentioned the Marine barracks bombing and the, the seizure of hostages by the Lebanese Hezbollah in the, in the 80s. Um, Iran's uh, seizure of hostages, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the US Embassy uh, um, hostage crisis between 79 and 81. Likewise, you know, various other embassies have been seized. So, um, and it's always by kind of, you know, groups that whose relationship to the regime are kind of not clear, at least at, at first. So um, this is kind of a, they've, they've had a um, well-worn gray zone playbook that they've used for several decades now. That doesn't mean that they won't wage conventional war if necessary. So for instance, they, they waged an eight year war against Iran, which Iranians were, uh, against Iraq, excuse me, which Iranians referred to as the imposed war. And the reason that it was referred to as such, because first of all, it was imposed because Iraq invaded Iran, but also because I don't, I think, you know, to kind of look at it in, on another dimension, it's not their preferred way of war. And therefore it was imposed on them. This, this bloody conventional war was imposed on them. Likewise, the Syrian civil war. Um, this was um, from their point of view, a conspiracy by the United States, Saudi Arabia, and you know, the Zionists, you know, Israel, to undermine the axis of resistance by undermining the Assad regime. So when they assessed that it was safe to intervene conventionally um, um, to fight the rebels and, and, and the like, they did so. So they will fight conventionally if it serves their interests or if it's necessary. But their, their preference is for, you know, to operate in the gray zone. And again, that's not a transitory calculation that's deeply rooted in their strategic culture. Finally, they have a diverse growing um, gray zone toolkit. 
in the 80s, it was mainly proxy attacks, but in the recent decades, you know, they have a lot, you know, the long range strike capabilities, precision strike capabilities they've developed in recent years, not just ballistic missiles, but cruise missiles now, drones, um, cyber, um, and also in the information domain, kind of propaganda um, efforts, you know, political warfare efforts to undermine uh, the American electoral system, um, you know, their efforts to, to meddle in the last election. So it's a broad, diverse, growing toolkit, which provides them with multiple options. And in a way that acts as a pressure gauge because they could operate in several geographic arenas in multiple domains using various tools. If they get too close to escalation in one line of operation, they can shift efforts to another line of operation, pull back, shift a line of efforts to another line of operation to ensure that things remain in the gray zone and do not kind of um, result in escalation to a kind of overt conflict against a stronger adversary that they simply want to, like the United States, that they want to deal with in the gray zone. Next page, please. Okay, so let me just, you know, bottom line, now, if you want to get, you know, if you want to get the historical background, uh, you know, how I made these conclusions, I would recommend the, you know, the monograph that, you know, I mentioned before that's, you know, provides the cover, that's on the cover of this slide presentation, or my PRISM piece in um, the NDU, uh, NDU's uh, publication, PRISM. Um, where I go to the specific examples, you know, the, the um, um, Operation Earnest Will in the 1980, late 1980s at the end of the Iran-Iraq War, um, Iran's efforts to undermine the U.S. in Iraq after the U.S. invasion, likewise um, their counter-pressure campaigns against the Obama administration's pressure campaign um, between 2011 and 2014 or so, 2010, 2014, and then their counter-pressure campaign against the Trump administration maximum pressure policy. So first of all, they're learning an adaptive adversary. They always will test and probe to determine U.S. risk tolerances and response thresholds to see what they could get away with, okay? And, you know, when they were doing this as part of the counterpressure campaign against the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy, we saw a progression from simple to complex and from non-lethal to lethal activity. So, for instance, what we saw first, the first thing they did, the first shoot to hit the floor was in May of 2019, May 12th when four foreign oil tankers were damaged by Olympic mines off of Fujairah. Now, these, were, these ships were at anchor, so it was kind of not a very challenging target. Um, but a month later, they hit two tankers in the Gulf of Oman that were underway, something more challenging and more complex, okay? Likewise, with regard to their strike, um, um, the strike missions they launched. First, they launched a strike mission in, in May, um, in mid-May, two days after the attack of the, uh, on the tankers off of Fujairah, um, actually it was via proxy, Qadab Hezbollah of Iraq launched a cruise missile, I mean, excuse me, a drone strike on the Saudi east-west oil pipeline, um, two particular sites, two pumping stations, if I remember correctly. So that was involved um, a, a drone strike from a single point um, of departure, as far as I understand, against two particular targets. Then in September of 2019, they launched a combined drone and cruise missile strike against two facilities um, in Abqaiq and Khores in um, Saudi Arabia in the Eastern province, multiple aim points um, from multiple launch points. And again, two different types of weapons uh, that, that flew at different speeds, drones and, and cruise missiles. So that was a much more sophisticated operation. Okay. So that's an example of how they kind of, you know, graduate uh, from simple to complex. Um, as I mentioned before, for a lot of gray zone actors, and I can say for sure with Iran, 
managing risk is paramount for them. They have the traumas of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, they saw what the United States was able to do in Iraq um, and then in, well, in Afghanistan and Iraq in 2001. They do not want to be in a conventional shooting war with the United States. Um, so they will do what they can to manage risk. And that's why they all, always are testing and probing to see what the U.S. risk tolerance and response thresholds are. Okay? And they will rely on proxies and covert and acknowledge attacks in order to manage that risk. Okay? And they will also do things to limit the impact of their actions. So I mentioned before the limpet mine attacks. Generally, at least the first ones were on the bow and stern of the ship, um, probably where there is you know, uh, either open space or ballast. Um, the subsequent attacks, I think some of them were midship um, and were intended perhaps to create a psychological effect of burning oil. But again, not, a not, not crew accommodation areas, which is what they did in the Iran-Iraq war in, in the 1980s, when a lot of their um, attacks on international shipping was intended to produce um, uh, casualties, to produce uh, lethal effects. And I mentioned before the attack on the Aramco facilities in September of 2019, the guidance from the Supreme Leader, supposedly, and I, and I believe this, um, it makes sense, was no civilians killed, no Americans killed. And then likewise, with the retaliation for the Qasem Soleimani killing, I think they were trying to kill Americans. Um, but they also gave the Iraqi government warning, advance warning that the, the attack was coming. And we also had determined from our own intelligence sources that it was coming. So it gave us time to, for you know, personnel to take shelter. Still, they were taking a risk. They could have killed Americans. But the fact that they gave us, this, or at least the Iraqis advanced warning, and that gave us time to prepare probably, from their point of view, was a way of mitigating risk, lowering the likely casualties um, that, you know, if, if there were to be any, that would have you know, been the outcome of that strike. Um, with regard to the, you know, the challenges of gray zone deterrence, um, you know, there's always attribution challenges. Some, you know, I think we've done pretty good in the past knowing, um, finding the Iranian fingerprints on their activities. And like I said, the main challenge is standoff. Um, and there are sometimes though, you know, more recently after the killing of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, um, there is perhaps some of their proxies do have greater latitude to act and their grip over the, their, some of their proxies has, uh, you know, kind of reduced. And this always ties American policymakers in knots. We want to escalate when this action maybe wasn't authorized by the Supreme Leader or the, or, or the, or, you know, the Iranian deep, you know, state, so to speak. Um, and we also self-deter ourselves because we have our own traumas with regard to Iran, the embassy hostage crisis, um, Operation Earnest Will, um, and, and, and the seizure of American hostages in Lebanon. So we self-deter ourselves even when I think um, there is not a, a, a real threat of escalation. So that's part of the challenge. And then also Iranian pacing and spacing of their activities. They are very careful not to conduct an intense series of actions when operating in the gray zone, because they know then the, uh, the adversary is more likely to respond if there is a flurry of punches. But if there is individual punches every once in a while, every few weeks, the, and, and it, makes, you know, it takes us several days to determine the source of the punch, so to speak, then escalation is less, less likely. And it also creates the possibility that you know, people in the American political system will say, well, if we don't respond, maybe this will be the last um, um, action on their part. And if we follow it up with deterrence warnings, maybe they won't follow it up with further activities. So by spacing things um, in, in space and time, um, geographically and temporarily, it plays to kind of the psychology of, you know, kicking the can down the road to some extent. Let's not retaliate. Maybe this will be, you know, kind of, this will close the kind of the, the file and, and we'll send 
you know, we'll send robust deterrence warnings and, and, and nothing will come of this, okay? There's also another point we have to keep in mind that we're not always trying to deter exclusively, that sometimes we're also trying to compel while we're deterring. And this was happened with the Trump administration's um, uh, maximum pressure policy. We were trying to create sufficient pressure on the regime that they would come to the negotiating table and, and negotiate, renegotiate not just the nuclear deal, but a whole bunch of other things uh, with us at the time. And when we finally decided, you know, when we, we implemented maximum pressure in May of 2018, but we didn't completely try to cut off their oil supplies for another year because we didn't want to spike oil prices and have adverse impacts on our own economy and, and that the economy of our, of, our, of our allies. But finally, in, in April of 2019, we announced the eight countries that were given waivers to buy Iranian oil would no longer have those waivers. And we were gonna to try to drive oil exports to zero. So Iran, from their point of view, felt they were cornered. And at that point, we, we're not going to be able to deter them because they see the noose being put around their neck. And unless they lash out, they felt, from their point of view, probably, they were, they were going to, you know, they were going to be um, boiled. You know, they were the frog, they were the frog in, in the pot that was, now that the United States was turning up the heat on and that they had to start splashing around. And we got scolded as a result, you know, because they, they lashed back militarily, okay? So there's a time where you have to look at your deterrence efforts in the context of other things you're trying to do, because some of the other things you're trying to do might undermine your ability to deter, and you gotta keep that in mind. Also, we have to, we've learned in the, in the gray zone that deterrence effects, such as the killing of Qasem Soleimani and other things we've done, are often short-lived and have a limited shelf life, okay? So, you know, after we killed Soleimani, and I, I'll have a, a graphic of this I'll show at the end, um, not, 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 not yet, not yet. Um, after we killed Soleimani, um, the Iranians retaliated. And they didn't do anything for a few months. There was a spike in March, but really through the summer, they kind of kept low. Their proxies responded for several weeks after the killing of Soleimani Mohandas, but then they also kind of, you know, went to ground for a bit, okay? And then they started around the summer, started testing and probing again to see what they could get away with. So we were quiet. And we also changed their risk calculus, and I'll discuss this a little bit more in a minute. But it wasn't like when you, you know, we don't, you don't restore deterrence permanently. And, you know, Secretary of State Pompeo said, we killed Soleimani to restore deterrence. I prefer the language used by, um, you know, General um, McKenzie at CENTCOM, which is, we have a situation of contested deterrence with Iran. I think that's more accurate. It's never, you never restore deterrence. It's always going to be detested, uh, contested. And you might achieve certain deterrence effects, but they're usually short-lived because Iran will then test and probe to see after a few months, the United States gets you know, distracted by something else. And this is part of the problem. As a great power with global responsibilities, we have a limited attention span and we cannot respond to every challenge and test. And they know that, okay? Because for them, it's 24 seven, the US threat. This is their biggest threat in many, in many ways to their survival. They are almost completely focused on us. We are focused on the world. So this will always create opportunities for them to test and probe and to do things um, that, you know, to advance their interests, okay? Now, Iran leverages conceptual asymmetries to deter, okay? So one of them is the U.S. binary approach to war and peace. And this is rooted in American culture and our legal system. We think of there's war on one hand, there's peace on one hand, on the other hand, and there's this kind of gray zone between them, which enables you know gray zone actors to exploit that kind of space that binary form of thinking 
where, you know, if it's a proxy, do we really want to go to war with this, you know, with Iran because it's something that one of their proxies may have done on their own? You know, there's always that kind of out that maybe this is a rogue action, or maybe it was done by rogue actors, it was commissioned by rogue actors in the Iranian system. Now, I would argue that most of the, in almost every case, Iran commissions almost all of these kind of activities. Um, and it's usually, you know, in accordance with guidance from the Supreme Leader. But there's always a degree of doubt. And there's always, you know, the intelligence is often ambiguous and it creates this kind of um, um, dilemma in, in, in the minds of the U.S. policymakers. And then I mentioned this asymmetry and motivation, you know, that we are not always able to focus fully on Iran. Um, we have other, um, you know, things going on in the world and we're not always able to respond to their challenges. So really the key terrain in gray zone activities is the gray matter between the ears of U.S. decision makers. And it's our way of thinking, which is creates constraints on our action. And I'll go a little bit more about this um, into this in a minute. Um, and creates freedom of action for the Iranians. Okay. Now, one of the one of these ways in which you know our way of thinking is problematic is that we're always worried about escalation of war. And we, I don't, I don't know. You, you've probably seen after the killing of Soleimani how many articles were written about the U.S. and Iran were on the brink of all-out war. Okay, in the wake of the killing of Soleimani. Now, the problem is, I, I don't agree, and I, I, I kind of um, for various reasons. And I can't give my whole ar argument now, but it's hard to make the argument because the president said we were on the brink of war. General McKenzie has said we were on the brink of war. And General Milley has said we were on the brink of war. But I don't agree. My job as an analyst is not to take what policymakers at face value, but, but, to, but to, you know, dig down deeper. And I don't think we were on the brink of war because I don't think the president would have um, um, authorized a strike that would have led to a war. An escalation, yes another desert fox type activity of several days of strikes, yes. But the Iranians have to be willing to fight a conventional war as well. And I just don't see them wanting to do that. They will respond conventionally, but if possible, they will then morph into the gray zone if they can, and a prolonged shadow war with us if they can. So I think a lot of these fears are kind of um, over, uh, overdone, though I would never be I would never be cavalier about the potential for escalation and even the potential for war. So you can't be dismissive of it. But I think we have self-deterred ourselves because we've greatly exaggerated the, the potential for war. And this is a fear that the Iranians um, play on. All the time, for, for, former Foreign Minister Zarif has said, America is doing things that is putting us on the brink of war. So they play, they kind of try to promote kind of the domestic debate about you know, recklessness in foreign policy, another, another forever war that the United States is, is kind of launching itself on, uh, uh, you know, putting itself on the, on the, uh, on the, on the, on the brink of. And um, it, it kind of causes um, us, again, to tie ourselves in knots in terms of how we respond. Next page. And this will be my last, last page here. Ah, there's a, there's a, uh, a graph after I'll show very briefly. I'm just going to go very briefly here because I'm running out of time. Bottom line is, I'm, I'm making the case that the, to be more effectively, uh, to be more effective in deterring Iran's gray zone activities, we have to go forward with our own gray zone deterrence strategy. And I want to emphasize deterrence strategy. This is not a proactive rollback strategy against Tehran. This is an economy of force strategy for the Middle East to deal with Iran so that we can focus more on China and Russia. So it's basically a reactive strategy that in response to Iranian activities, we do things in order to limit their freedom of action and, and to force them um, to act by less effective, less harmful means. And that's really how I would def 
define success in the gray zone. It's not either or, you're either deterring them or you're not. There's always gonna be leakage. There's always gonna be, it's not absolute in the gray zone, okay? Because you are we are focused worldwide and Iran has this kind of, um, you know, kind of laser, you know, um, um, you know, focus on us. But if we could force Iran to operate by less effective means um, and to operate in ways that are less harmful to our interests, that's deterrent success in the gray zone, okay? And I would argue that we can do that. You know, I would also argue that a gray zone approach is more suitable for where we are politically in terms of our domestic politics. People are sick of Middle Eastern forever war, so they don't wanna see overt American, you know, kind of high profile activities. If we operate in the gray zone, those kind of activities are less likely to royal American domestic politics. It's also less likely to royal the politics of our allies. We saw what happened in Iraq after we killed um, uh, Soleimani and Mohandas. There was a vote in the parliament to get the United States out and we're constantly facing calls for the United States to be caught, tossed out of Iraq. Although there are, you know, by and large, most people want us there, but acting overtly compli unnecessarily complicates life for ourselves domestically and regionally. And likewise, to the degree that we're also trying to get to some kind of nuclear negotiations with Iran that kind of have a broader kind of, um, um, you know, um, a broader, that the cover, you know, uh, other activities as well, gray zone activities are less likely to be disruptive to di diplomacy. It'll enable us to act in a way that does not derail um, ongoing diplomatic efforts, okay? So I would argue also, that's why I don't use the term gray zone warfare, because once you, you know, use the term warfare with Americans, they kind of get unhinged and they say, well, if this is war, then we, you know, then, then go big or go home. Then let's use decisive force against them. And that will, again, that's the best way to undermine any efforts to counter Iran gray zone activities, because it'll just raise the volume on the calls to end forever wars, to pull out of the Middle East and the like. So I, I see a gray zone deterrent strategy as a way of navigating the political constraints on US action vis-a-vis -vis Iran, okay? So I talk about also gray zone activities because it also does, it implies that it's not just a military act, effort. This involves also, you know, information activities and propaganda and psychological warfare and sanctions. So it's a, all of government, all of society effort, because we also have to harden our, elector, our electoral system against Iranian gray zone efforts that, that are, you know, geared in this area, although they're not as sophisticated as the Russians or the Chinese maybe in this, in this regard, but this is, you know, it, it, it's, it's, the way I look at the gray zone, it's not, it's, it's not primarily military, although the military com component is inevitably gonna be very uh, important. And again, getting back to this abandoning, abandoning the conventional mindset um, issue. Again, we have to think in terms of, you know, not achieving a knockout blow or you know, achieving our goals or victory through a knockout blow, but achieving, um, you know, gaining advantage through incre incremental gains. And this is very hard for Americans because we are kind of raised in the Clausewitzian tradition of, of you know, decisive warfare, uh, decisive battle, um, which leads to um, decisive end, uh, end states. And, and by the way, there's no end states, okay? So don't ask, tell me, you know, tell me how this ends because it doesn't end. International competition never ends. And don't ask about what's our exit strategy because there is no exit strategy. This is a long-term competition that we're engaged in vis-a-vis Iran versus China versus Russia. Um, and I, I guess, you know, if you were to ask me how it ends, I would say it's probably ends with the regime evolving in a different way or kind of collapsing um, eventually. But it, that might be, you know, two months or that might be another 20, 30 years from now. So I don't have a, a, a very clear roadmap to how to achieve that. Okay. 
Um, I mentioned before, deterrence is contested. So don't think in terms of restoring deterrence. It's, it's always, it's, it never ends. And it's a constant, um, you know, kind of a, a challenge and response dynamic. Um, deterrence effects are only one measure of effectiveness. Like I mentioned before, um, the killing of Soleimani, for instance, that did have some beneficial deterrence effects, but uh, the, the, the disruption effects it had on Iran and its proxies in Iraq were just as important, okay? So we strengthened deterrence, I would argue, by killing Soleimani, although we're now seeing some effects, long-term effects that are kind of maybe not in our interests, um, and we could discuss that during the discussion. Um, but also the disruption to Iranian policy in Iraq was very important, and that was an important gain. So sometimes you have to weigh, you know, that not, not every action will have, you know, desirable um, deterrent effects, but maybe the disruption effects are worth it. So you have to weigh those things together. And then finally, and I'm not going to go to all these points. If you want to read about all these points about aligning ways, means, and ends of U.S. deterrence strategy, deterrence versus compellence, which I discussed a little bit already, denial and punishment, we, I, I think we've rely too much in denial and not enough, not enough a mix of punishment and denial. Um, it, it's, in, it's in the monograph. Um, capability and credibility, I discussed this actually, I, I had a uh, short piece about a 1500 word piece with a research assistant of mine, Henry Nim, which came out a couple of months ago about do aircraft carriers deter Iran? And we basically showed, which actually I'll tell you what, I'm gonna show this just in a minute, my final slide, and I'm gonna wrap up. Um, that basically, I don't think, it, you know, here, I'll just show you, here, here's the presence of U.S. carrier strike groups in the Persian Gulf, you know, basically in, in an average of close to one over the last three years. But look at all the stuff that Iran did in Iraq, some of the stuff they did, attacks on oil, transport infrastructure, while we had a carrier strike group in the Gulf. So I think we've run our Navy into the ground for no good reason. Um, and if we acted more um, consistently at a lower level, um, we may have been more successful at the tearing than certainly having a carry strike group that does presence patrols or B-52, um, sending B-52s to do present patrols. Because I don't think that really deters the adversary. So anyhow, if you could go back to the, best, best, the, the previous slide, and I'll just wrap up now. Um, go long, not big. We have to think about seeking advantage via incremental cumulative gains, not a victory through decisive action. We have to also think about pacing and spacing activities. It's not all high intensity. It's doing things over the long run. And then finally, let's get back to the last slide, please. And I'm sorry, and this is my final point, and I promise. The final point is, I just look at this middle slide here. Look at the, little, the middle graph, okay? I want to show you something. Okay. Look, as we go towards the right, the, the kind of the medium, the, the medium gray or the dark gray is rocket attacks on us, which were traditionally the most lethal attacks. We see in recent months, they've gone down. They're at a much lower level. And if you look at the hatched gray graphs, those are attacks on logistical convoys in Iraq. Those logistical convoys have no Americans there, okay? Those are all attacks that are manned by Iraqi contractors. So they've reduced their rocket attacks and they've increased their attacks on our logistical convoys, which don't kill Americans. So this is what I call performative resistance on the part of the Iraqi groups So want to, kind of put on a brave face to show that they're resisting the American presence, but they're doing it in a way that doesn't have the potential, heightened potential for escalation. Then we see on the right here, the black, that's drone attacks that they've done in recent months, but it's, it's gone down. And I don't have here September, but September, September numbers are one quarter of August numbers, okay? Only about 11 attacks in September, so way down. So, a lot of stuff that goes on with regard to proxy activity is not really necessarily related to us, I think. 
it may be due to the presidential turnover in, 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 Iran, in Iran or other things. But what I'm just trying to say, this is in a way what the terrorist success looks like. We've caused them to you know, cut down on the rocket attacks and they've ramped up on the attacks on the convoys. Still, it, it, it imposes a cost on us. And, and, and even the UAV attacks, which they've been ramping up early part of this year, puts constraints on our freedom of action there. So it's constantly, we, we, you know, even though we're succeeding in some ways, we want to constantly get them to a lower level of threat. So it, it's never over, but we've achieved a degree of success because they're not um, doing things that have traditionally been more lethal in the past. So anyhow, I, there's a lot more we could talk about. Let's, let's open it up to Q&A and discussion, and I look forward to this, this part of the presentation. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, Mr. Eisenstadt. Let me stop sharing the slides and adjust the view. There we go, all right. Um, so thank you again, and now we will move on to the Q&A portion of today's discussion, and thank you everyone for submitting your questions. Um, so I'd like to start off with one from Heather Williams from RAND. And this question yeah. is, you say that Iran is 100% focused on the US all the time. This is a common refrain from a US perspective, but it does a center value how much the Iranians' um, actions have are directed towards the region against Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, Russia, et cetera. Yeah, actually, Heather's 100% right. I, that, was a little, that was a little bit hyperbolic on my part. I, I would say militarily, I think the, um, you know, look, the, 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 the Taliban takeover is something which I have no doubt is uh, concerning them because they nearly came to you know, blows with uh, the Taliban in 1998. So she's absolutely 100% right. And I, I kind of um, over, overstepped the bounds there. But, but the bottom line is, I think we are still the number one threat to them. Um, but but you know, you're right, they have, they have a, um, a, a full plate with the region and they do focus on other threats. They are worried about the Israelis as well, which I think they kind of see together with the United States. Um, group of the United States, but you know, Taliban now certainly. Um, so she's right. She's right. No worries. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, we had another question um, about a about Iran's relationship with a uh, non-U.S. country, and that is um, from Pierre Pavlavi. And the question is: Tensions have been growing with Azerbaijan as Iran moves closer to the border. To what extent do you think that Western and Israeli military and diplomatic support to, uh, to Baku is part of the larger indirect attempt at containing the Islamic regime's regional influence through proxy warfare and gray zone approach? Yeah, um, I'll be honest with you. I don't follow the um, Azerbaijan-Iran angles um, very closely, so shame on me. So I, I, I really can't give you a good answer to that one. I, I admit, look, I, I have my own biases. I, I, I'm a Middle East area specialist, so I tend to focus on the Levant and the Gulf. And so this is kind of a blind spot for me. So I, I just don't have um, a good sense. I mean, I know this has been in the past um, an area of focus um, by the US and Israel, because the Israelis have relations with the um, Azerbaijanis. I, I just don't have a good sense of how the role it plays in, in the overall kind of um, you know, picture. And look, let me just say, I'm not sure how much of what we're doing now is in the gray zone or versus overtly. Um, by its nature, gray zone activities are, you know, kind of uh, either covert or unacknowledged, although we do have a leaky government and very often stuff does come out. But so I, I, I wouldn't say that we're, you know, there might be gray zone elements of our policy now. I don't know if it's a dominant element at this point. But again, the way how Azerbaijan fits into this, I just don't know. No worries. Thank you. 
Our next question comes from Lieutenant Colonel Jones from NIU. And this question is, as the U.S. continues to pursue great power competition, East Asia and Europe, and the credibility of U.S. extended deterrence in the Middle East comes into question, should we expect Iran to increase or decrease its use of gray zone activity in the Middle East? Do you see yeah, Iran's gray zone approach as a way of war, as the approach favored by the uh, Hastaran and the Artesh? If not, can Iran have an effective dual parallel military structure with two distinct doctrines and approaches to warfare? Yeah, I mean, almost all the gray zone activities are implemented by our IRGC. And they have, you know, not just the lead, I, I, you know, I, I don't know enough, but I, I think they're probably in many cases, if not all the cases, just about the exclusive, you know, kind of, um, um, actor you know, in this regard, and it kind of because it fits with their kind of preferred modus operandi, you know, their whole concept of, of revolutionary warfare and um, kind of you know asymmetry. Um, um, so let me just say, in terms of you know the whole issue of American credibility is something which um, you know it's it's really hard to get um, you know one's arms around how our adversaries see us simply because we are in, ma in many ways, perhaps the most unpredictable actor in the region. And I'll give you the three examples I always love to give you know, of this. Um, first of all, you know, um, you know, George H.W. Bush said that we have no um, opinion on inter-Arab quarrels such as that between Iraq and Kuwait. Iraq invades Kuwait um, after that you know, um, kind of uh, message was passed on through our ambassador, um, April Glaspie. And uh, it turned out we did have an opinion, and it cost Saddam Hussein very, you know, very dearly. Um, George W. Bush ran for president, saying, "No more nation building, no state, you know, no state, no nation building um, in the Middle East." 9/11 happened, and we, um, you know, kind of uh, embark on the largest, you know, state nation building effort since World War II that we undertook. And President Obama said, you know, no third Middle Eastern war. My, you know, I was elected president to get us out of the existing two wars we were in. Um, ISIS takes over northern Iraq in, uh, you know, June 2014, I guess. And we have our third Middle Eastern war. So we are, you know, we are, and, and you know, this kind, these kind of mistakes are very costly, okay? So I think even though the withdrawal from Afghanistan has to have hurt us, certainly in the eyes of many of our allies and raised questions about our reliability. This is not the first time this has happened. I mean, many of our, many of our Arab partners have been saying since 2003, you know, you gave, you gave Iraq to Iran, okay? Um, you, you gave it to them on a silver platter. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree. And I, I think it's kind of, there's kind of often shades of kind of this conspiratorial thinking in this, but also even if you, you, even if you don't, you know, you know, kind of exotic conspiracy, you know, the conspiratorial element, it's kind of well, you're incompetent, you know. So they're, they've had a long, long for a long time had questions about our, you know, our competence. On the other hand, we do things. We, you know, we, we got, you know, we got Baghdadi, we got, you know, Bin Laden. So there's kind of this kind of odd mix of hyper competence and 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 gross incompetence in the way we act. And nobody wants to find out which side they're going to be, you know, which, which whether they're going to benefit, you know, or or whether the U.S. is going to respond incompetently or or, or hyper competently to a challenge. So. I'm not sure. I think the Iranians are still very, you know, kind of uh, risk averse with us. Although now we have a new um, president with a new team, um, they, you know, there there is less uh, plural, uh, you know, plural, pluralism within the regime there than ever before, and I worry that there's a different 
there might be a different approach to risk taking in Tehran. And you know, this does fit in with Afghanistan. Like I said, in September, we've seen the lowest monthly rate of attacks on the US um, in Iraq in a long time. But maybe that was a presidential transition. Maybe it had nothing to do with deterrence. And maybe they're planning to ramp up. I don't know. So we have to be ready for challenges. Um, and um, you know, again, we are extremely unpredictable. And that creates, um, I think, keeps up a lot of our um, adversaries up at night, as well as our allies, too. Um, but it also ends up you know, causing them to be more risk averse or more careful in dealing with us um, than they would otherwise. And that's why you always have to respond to tests and probes, because they want to see what our risk and response thresholds are. And therefore, you can't afford to sit on your hands too long. Otherwise, you get the, the very situation you're trying to avoid. You get escalation, which is what happened with the Trump administration in December of uh, 2019. All right, thank you. Uh, Terry Everhart has asked our next question, and she says, what deters Iran? What would cause them to stand down their efforts in the Middle East, um, i.e. Syria, I Iraq, Yemen? Okay, I, I don't believe they're gonna stand down their efforts because for the reason I said before, look, Increasingly, we're, you know, even when we were big, you know, when we were kind of when the Middle East was our main focus, where, um, you know, we, we, we couldn't, we can't, we didn't respond to every Iranian challenge. And in fact, you know, throughout the whole time that we were in Iraq, you know, how to respond appropriately to Iranian support for their proxies that were attacking, that were engaged in a kind of a low level war of attrition against us there. I mean, the DOD says we lost 603 or so, you know, um, military personnel in Iraq to, you know, pro-Iranian um, proxies, you know, even then we were kind of, you know, unsure how to respond. So, um, you know, I, so I don't, I don't have, um, you know, a, a good answer for that, except to say, um, well, I, I'm, can, can you just repeat, can you repeat, I lost my train of thought, so can you repeat that, the, the, the question there in terms of, Yes. Um, so the question was, what deters Iran and oh, yeah. what would cause okay. them to stand yeah. down their efforts in yeah, the Middle so, East? So they, they don't stand down their efforts. Okay. And, and with us, we weren't able to deter them even when we had 150,000 troops um, in, in Iraq. We, we, don't, we don't deter them when we have one or even two carrier strike groups in the Gulf. Um, although I'll mention we've never launched aircraft on those carrier strike groups. So that's another reason why, except during urgent, um, um, earnest will, we never, we never use the carrier strike groups to deter Iran, um, you know, uh, in response to the acts of terrorism that they were engaged in or the like, or the like. So you can deter them by imposing costs in terms of their proxy policy, um, in terms of, and that's why I'm arguing for, for instance, you know, maybe covert action against their oil infrastructure, so that even if we lift sanctions, they should know that even though this, even if we lift sanctions on their oil on their oil um, sector, you know they're not necessarily going to be able to export if they continue some of the activities that they're engaged in. So you try to limit their freedom of action and, you know, prevent them from operating, you know, force them to operate by less effective means. So, you know, the, and you're not always going to be able to get, I and mean, the Soleimani kind of uh, strike was kind of a one-off because there's nobody of his stature, um, you know, currently in the system there. Um, and, and they're still recovering from that. So there's no, there is no easy answer except, a, a, you know, a combined policy of, you know, sanctions, gray zone activities. Now we might have to lift some of those sanctions if we do 
conclude a, a new agreement with Iran that covers nuclear and other activities. So if they continue attacks against us, you know, we might have to operate, you know, in the gray zone. But let me just say also, um, you know, after we, we concluded the JCPOA with Iran, they ramped up their activities in Syria and, and, and Yemen. So maybe it's a combination, and, and maybe that doesn't happen this time, maybe it does, I don't know. Maybe it involves increased support to the Israelis who are engaged in their own gray zone campaign against the, the um, Iranians in Syria. Um, maybe it's, you know, working with uh, Gulf allies, although, you know, I, I think there's limited potential to work with them against um, the Iranians because they're so close they're risk averse because they're so vulnerable. And, and you know, the, the Aramco strike in September of 2019 showed exactly how vulnerable they are. So there's limits to what they can do. But I would argue, again, things that threaten potentially the stability of the regime, you know, political warfare um, is one area where we can threaten them uh, and perhaps constrain their freedom of action. But we have to be very careful because that gets very close to a lot of their red lines. That might cause them to escalate. So, but if it's done again via proxies or you know in an unacknowledged way, um, or limited military strikes, you know, um, uh, you know, in response to activities that threaten American interests, you know, again, and let me just say, a lot of this is experimentation, and this is, you know, I don't mean to sound glib, but you don't know what works until you try it, okay? And that's we, you know, I, I see kind of a um, real reluctance to kind of um, experiment, and again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm trying to you know, being very kind of cavalier about, you know, well, we need to just, you know, see what works with Iran and, and you know, try bomb here or, or do that. But a lot of it's not bombing. A lot of it is maybe cyber, maybe cyber activities. Maybe it's um, global Magnitsky kind of, you know, um, sanctions or, or stuff like that. You know, a combination of factors to see what kind of response you get and see what works. So I don't have the answer, but I would argue act, acting more proactively at a lower level um, than we have in the past. In the past, it's not you know it's not the you know the home you know going for the grand slam killing you know Soleimani or, or Mohandas. It's lower you know being more proactive at a lower level of the escalatory ladder, which might, which that imposes costs on Iran, that might cause them to um, ease up a bit. But you don't stop them. You you know and so again, please, you need to get away from deterrence is working. It's not working. That is like a binary thing. There's always going to be leakage because we're increasingly focused on other parts of the world. And even when we were focused on the Middle East, it wasn't 100%. All right. Thank you, Mr. Eisenstadt. Um, Kay Hanley asked, uh, what recommendations you have for leveraging allies to deter Iran? And how can we build a combined campaign? Um, look, I mean, we're already doing it with the Israelis. I mean, we're providing intelligence and the like. And this is all open source. So let me just make that clear. Um, um, but there's limits to what the Israelis can do. The Israelis are very focused on a very narrow kind of target set, very, you know, very narrow geographic focus, you know, in, in Syria, um, the nuclear, the nuclear program. Um, and a lot of the stuff they're doing is not having, you know, kind of, it's tactical, you know, they're winning battles. I'm not sure they're winning the war. And after Afghanistan, it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a heavy lift to get some of our allies uh, on board in this regard. But again, diplomacy is the art of the possible. I'm not just, you know, again, also the administration has to be willing to do this. And I'm just not sure that, you know, their, their head is, you know, in this. But again, I, that's why I think that's one of the benefits of, the, of a gray zone approach. We're not asking, you know, we're not saying that in order to um, contain Iranian influence or constrain Iranian behavior, you, you act in a way that 
royals, the, the base of the Democratic Party, especially the, you know, the, the progressive wing. Um, you, you know, it's, it's gray zone activities, it's covert activities, uh, unacknowledged, you know, conventional activities that um, may work vis-a-vis -vis Iran, but doesn't um, constrain the administration politically, okay? So again, we have to try to make the sale, the pitch to our allies, such as the Saudis, such as the Emiratis, what, what you know, what, um, you know, value added they could provide. One area that I'm looking at, you know, that I thought about is as, you know, we kind of, you know, well, CENTCOM has stood up this Task Force 59, which is kind of like a, you know, unmanned um, aerial surface and subsurface task force to kind of um, keep an eye on the Iranians. I think in accordance with the theory, which which may be correct, I don't know, I'm, I'm skeptical, but uh, they may, it might be right, that if Iran feels that they're being watched and cannot act deniably, and they therefore cannot act deniably, they're, they're more likely to be deterred. So maybe you know we could get the Iran, the the Emiratis and the Saudis and the Israelis and other actors involved in creating a maritime um, ISR infrastructure that to test this proposition to see if the Iranians are are deterred if they are you know uh, if you have this kind of um, continuous stare on their activities that it makes it harder for them to act in a deniable way um, maybe it's you know maybe it's maybe it's not you know, true. And, and I, I tend to be skeptical for reasons, like I said before, I think they're not, they're not all about deniability, but maybe CENTCOM has, um, you know, insights into this that I don't have. So I'm, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that this proposition needs to be tested. This is a good way of deterrence by denial, denying them deniability. And maybe this is an area which, because it's not, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of aggressive, it doesn't involve kinetics. It's something that our, you know, some of our Arab partners will buy into. And it has to do with maritime freedom of action. So it has international legitimacy and the like. That's, that's one area, maybe. All right, thank you, Mr. Eisenstadt. Um, and you um, inadvertently touched on one of the other questions that we had about Israel um, and its role playing in Iranian deterrence. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, okay, I'd like to fit this one in from Todd Beasy uh, before we wrap up and maybe we'll have time for another question, we'll see. Um, so this question is, thinking of Iran specifically, Kissinger has observed that Iranian leaders view themselves as a cause and not a country, and that if Iran ever reversed this worldview and started behaving more as a rational actor in accordance with geopolitical norms, it might actually be a natural ally in this region. It follows that the long view for the U.S. may be to herd and hasten the Iranians to um, transformation from cause to country. This would seem to involve lots of carrots and stick activity in the gray zones, but with a clear objective to undermine the legitimacy of the unending Iranian revolution. Does such a calculation fit into your notion of gray zone deterrence? Yeah, let me just say, I mean, Kissinger um, actually said there's a tension. They, they, if I remember correctly, the quote is that they have, they have to decide whether they're a cause or a country, and they haven't really decided. They're kind of, there's this dualism in their policy. And by the way, I think that's true of the United States as well, um, because we have you know, we kind of, there's a pendulum swing in terms of U.S. foreign policy between kind of, you know, this idealistic kind of promotion of democracy and, and the like versus kind of a real politic approach. So we, we kind of, you know, are torn between those two tensions as well. I would just argue that um, Iran's, you know, kind of this tension as it works itself out with Iran has been more destructive in the Middle East, although I think so, we've also made some mistakes that have contributed to instability there in, in, in kind of pursuing some of our more idealistic goals. But so the thing is, we, I don't think we have the ability, 
I think this is a kind of a baked in kind of um, aspect of Iranian, you know, identity, just as it is, just as it is with, with the United States. And at least it is with the Islamic Republic. I'm, I'm, you know, if it was a different regime, you know, under the Shah, I'm not quite sure it, it was the case. With the Islamic Republic, it, it definitely is the case. You have this kind of cause versus country, you know, uh, tension. And it doesn't, it just, it, it never gets resolved um, as long as you have this regime. So I don't see it, I don't see them growing out of it as long as the Islamic Republic of Iran continues to exist. Um, and I'm not sure, so I don't see there's anything that we can really do about it until the regime changes, evolves into a different kind of, uh, you know, form of governance, or you have regime change there. And again, um, you know, you know, I'm not a, a proactive advocate for re regime change, though I would argue it would, it would really make life a lot easier if you could find a way we could accomplish it without blowback. But there's no, there's no way of, 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 of doing that. And right now, of course, in Washington today, you know, um, you know, Phil Gordon has his book about, you know, regime change as being kind of like one of the kind of, uh, you know, the major problems of American policy um, over the last, uh, you know, two decades. So, that, you know, you, you won't find many people kind of advocating for that. But I would argue that while you try to contain the Islamic Republic, it's in our interest to heighten the contradictions that are built into the regime. And, you know, one of this, and one of these being you know, kind of this tension between Iran as a cause and as a country. And most Iranians will support Iran as a country. A lot of Iranians are sick and tired of Iran being a cause. So this is a source of vulnerability, you know, and we've seen in the protests, you know, you know, my life for Iran, but not for, you know, not for, you know, Gaza, not for the Palestinians, not for Syria. So um, there is, in that tension, between their identity, there is um, the potential for, you know, exploiting, you know, kind of, um, on, 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 uh, say, um, you know, uh, you know, the lack unhappiness at home among most Iranians who, you know, they see that the, they're struggling to make a living, the economy is doing bad, there's environmental degradation, and, 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 and they're facing climate change uh, challenges. And, you know, why don't, you know, why are we sending, you know, money and people to die in faraway places when we can't even, you know, haven't even fixed our own house? So there, there's a there's a wedge there for us to exploit, and maybe we are, you know, in the I/O domain and in other domains, and that could be in the future, you know, a major source of leverage over the regime. But um, how you do it, that's I think another another talk, another time. Although I've read I've written about it, but that's another talk, another time. Well, on that note, um, we've reached the end of our our hour session today, um, Mr. Eisenstadt. Is there anything that you would like to to leave us with? Um, no, just thank you very much, and um, I welcome any further engagement on this topic with anybody you know attended here. Um, just because I I think this is um, you know it's it's very important for us, you know the, the U.S. You know, government and Defense Department to broaden its competence in in these kind of um, conflicts short of war because I think it's the wave of the future and, um, and and there's no end to competition. So we have to unfortunately that's the world we live in. So anyhow, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity and thank everybody here for participating. And thank you again, Mr. Eisenstadt, and thank you everyone for, for tuning in today. Have a great day.